Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code program. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware. Hello, it's Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. I'm going to make an admission now, which won't play well in some parts north of the border. But in 1990, during the World Cup semi-final between England and West Germany, when Chris Waddle very nearly chipped Bodo Ilgner in the German goal, but the ball came back off the woodwork. Even as a proud Scot, I so wanted it to go in. At that stage, Chris Waddle to me seemed like Britain's version of Michael Laudrup. The two of them are tall, very big athletic physiques, but they would glide past footballers, A, as if they were on roller skates, and B, as if they had the same low centre of gravity as a Romario or a Pele or a Maradona or a Messi. I thought Waddle was magical to look at, and what some of you who are younger won't know is that when he moved to Marseille, after dazzling at Newcastle, catching my attention there, and then dazzling again at Spurs, as far as I was concerned, there wasn't non-stop Sky television or YouTube internet in order to keep up with the way he was playing. So from intermittent television clips and from the written press, what it appeared to me that he was playing even more brilliantly in France than he had in England, and that he was a prince amongst paupers in the French League. Over the years, we've shared conversations about skills development, about what he does and doesn't think about great footballers, modern footballers. So we knew we had to go and talk to him. And when he welcomed us to his house, going up the stairs to his private room where there are football shirts framed from every year of his long career from famous people from dozens of countries. I also saw piles and piles of records and CDs and a little statuette of Laurel and Hardy at which point I knew we had the same sense of humour. Chris is a born raconteur. We called this the big interview because we wanted to touch on big themes and speak to big personalities. Maybe this was the biggest of the big. It's the longest and it's that long for a reason. Chris spoke with wit, passion. He had a pinpoint memory of so many incidents in his career. Neil, Martin and I were absolutely agog. It was a joy. Let's see if, at the end of this big interview with Chris Waddle, you feel the same way. I bet you do. (music) 
We're now, Chris, going to podcast. The last time you and I were together, we shared a beer mm. in Kiev. Yeah. It was just after the final of 2012. We'd seen Spain, Italy, wonderful game, 4-0. But what was still echoing about in my mind that day was something that I think you share a, a, a passion for because the night before the final, I'd been out with the son of Ozzy, Federico, and Federico and Adam, our cameraman, and I had been to a Queen concert live in the streets of Kiev, and we found this karaoke bar. Karaoke bar where it's a restaurant, you sit down, you have your meal, you get called up, you sing, and if you're doing well, the waitresses will join in with you. And the lads will tell you that if there's anything more passionate about than football, it's karaoke and singing. <laughs> if we fetched up in Tokyo or back in Kiev, what would be your all-time top three choices of songs to perform if I handed you the microphone and said, you're on? Well, when I do karaoke, which basically when you've said when you've had a beer, that's when you tend to want to do a karaoke. Usually. Yeah, without the, without the beer, I don't think I'd ever do a karaoke, to be honest. When I was growing up, I was a big jam fan. Yeah. So I followed the jam around a lot. So I'd have to put one of their songs in that. Out all the songs, probably, I'd have a bash it. It would probably be something like Eating Rifles or Going Underground or Strange Town. Uh, we some classic jam, jam song. Um, the one I've done probably the most, if I was honest, and people say when you get up to karaoke, you've got to do a song. It's either Mr. Brightside, oh. which I absolutely kill. And um, <laughs> I've got to say the other one I do, I used to do more of, was Rebel Yell by Billy Idol. I don't know why I ever picked that song. I, Billy Idol, I like some of his stuff, don't get us wrong, but I got up one day and sang it, and somebody went, eh, that sounded good. And I thought, are they taking the Michael or is, is it? And, and I thought, right. So I took it on board. So every time I sung a karaoke, they used to say, what are you going to sing? And I think, Rebel Hill. And I must kill it as well. But um, that's yeah, one probably the three songs. I'd, if I had to name the three to get up, that would probably be the three. You, you wake up after a Rebel Yell night with your very sore throat the next morning. You do, but um, it's just, I don't know. I don't know why I picked that song originally and why I ended up doing it. But I would probably say oh, the karaoke's I've done all my life, I would say Rebel Yell, probably the most I've done it. I grew up fascinated by the BBC Television Centre and the politics and the backbiting of how Top of the Pops was run. What is Top of the Pops like? The, 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 the build-up, the bar, the commissionaires, the, the, the director was a real Hitler, wasn't he, about like stand there yeah. and do this, shut up. Yeah, we, we uh, me and Glenn went on in 87 and it was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done. And that even talks about the penalty miss, Germany, finals, FA Cups, Champions League final with Marseille. Any type of football I've played can't compare to Top of the Pops. On the day, I missed the dress rehearsal because I was doing an interview somewhere else in London. Then I arrived, I had one rehearsal, and then basically that was it, went on. I always remember that, I remember it really well. And my Gary Davis was the guy introducing it. He was stood on some scaffolding above her, high up, and the cameras looked at us and it was zoomed to him. And he went, introducing now at number 11, Two guys who are known in the football or cutting it in the music business it could be the new Wham. <laughs> we just looked at him if the thing, are you real or what? Anyway, then we did it and then at the finish, the Sunday papers, that was a Thursday, the Sunday papers had a field day called with a new spam, everything they wanted. But to us, it was a nerve wracking. And I always remember I was on Terence Trent Derby, oh, yeah. five star. They were all very complimentary. Come up, Junior was on with Kim Wilde at the duet they did. And uh, they all come up and said, listen, hey, good on you, it sounds all right. And, you know, fair play, it's good, you know, wish you well. Uh, we were like, are they taking the mic? Or are they being serious? No, we're fine, you know. Anyway, and the only bloke we basically hammered with, who was on that night, was um, Smith Morrissey. Oh, did he? He's like, he was like, rubbish shouldn't be here. <laughs> He's a footballer. Cheers, mate. 
Yeah, we were like, well, yeah, fair enough. Well, I don't understand where he was coming from. <laughs> you know, everybody was going, all right, how are you? He was like, so, you know, um, we were never going to be every cup of tea. I mean, how it all happened, that was just chance of sitting there, having a few beers, getting up like a carry. It was a group who got up with Glenn up at this presentation night. And my mate said, oh, it sounded all right, that. I've got a blow in the music business. Next thing we're in a house. Next we're in a studio. Next thing it's... It's cool. But it's, singing is, is fantastic. The actual act of singing is, oh, makes I, you I happy, doesn't it? Gives oh, you endorphins. Yeah. Well, I've been in music. Glenn likes his music. I know Glenn like the, you know, big fan of the Eagles and stuff. Mm. I would tell it, I like the Eagles, but they want my cup of tea as no. such. You know, I, I can listen to the Eagles, I was wrong, but um, he liked his music, I liked the music. And, uh, and it was one of them, as it started progressing down the line, we thought, I thought, you know what? I'm not bothered if people take the mickey out with. I just thought, exactly. I, love, I love music. And whether it's a flop, whether it's a hit, whether whatever it is, it's a chance when you get older, you look back and think, I could have, I could have made a, a single or a whatever it was. Uh, we could have done that. And I thought, you know what? It's worth doing. And it, people still talk about it today, right? It was 1987 that, and people still talk. Wherever I go in the country, somebody will shout some question, and nine times out of ten, the question is, you're not singing Diamond Lights today, are you? 1987, that people still remember that record, which is unbelievable when I look back. You had another big hit, World in Motion. Mm. But they, why weren't you in the video? We weren't back no, no, I was in it. France. So they wouldn't let you come to film it? No. What happened with that was, they, I came from France, and we in the hotel at Burnham Beaches, and they came in and they said, we're doing a World Cup song, and everybody went, oh, not another one. That type of thing. And then they said, um, we're looking for some volunteers, New Order's doing it. So me, Gaza... Peter Beardsley, Steve McManus, John Barnes. I think it was five work. Went, yeah, we'll come. So it wasn't far where we were cutting it. And we got in the car and we, we drove down to this, it was like a house with a studio in it. And uh, Lars was there. He was uh, Keith Allen, the actor. And he was brilliant. He was like there and he got to go and got a few beers. And all we had to basically shout was, England. Barnes, he obviously did the rap bit. But all, also, all I wanted us for was just to keep going, England. So we thought, yeah, well, it's a day out. Get away from the hotel. Few beers. We had, we had a great laugh, great, don't it? To be fair, when you drove away and we went back, we thought nothing of it. We thought, yeah, it was a good day, that. And obviously, listen, depending on how the team do, depending on how did the record did. And because we started going through the tournament, all of a sudden people think quarterfinals, mm. semifinals. The song got played more, people were buying it more. The video, it was basically was an after event, which what they said was we're going to use footage of England playing. But the actual video of, you know, the jumping around bit, I wasn't there. And all they said was, look, you know, see how it goes. And I always remember when we got back from the World Cup and I went, I had another year more say. And when I came home, about a year later, more, whatever, I think it was my first season here. It's Sheffield Wednesday, yeah. And then I got a knock on the door and bloke gave us this big parcel. And I thought, what's that? He went, I don't know, it's a delivery thing. So I opened it up and it was a, a gold disc. <laughs> because you sing on it, you're entitled to the gold disc. Even though you're only showing England, you got a gold disc. So you thought, I didn't get it by Diamond Lights, but at least I got one eventually for, um, for with the England song. Uh, if, you're, if your chip, if your lob against Bodo mm. Elgner had gone in, you'd have been able to go back to Marseille and take the, the mickey out of yeah. the geyser. When you went back to Marseille and you found that the bugger who'd knocked you out of the semi-final of the World Cup was... Now, was France a bit... France a bit, more a bit mean, but... He was a top guy. After the semis, even on the pitch, you know, he didn't go celebrating with the German. He came around all nice. and, he, and he was like, look, Pass. you know... Listen, he was good as he won it. He knew it was, there was nothing between them. Yeah. And we basically knew whoever won that would win it. Yeah. And that was the game. That was the final, really, because you, you basically knew 
We watched Argentina, yeah, they had some talented players, but they were more of a clogging side, more of a physical side, not Argentina, which we'd picture. So we thought, yeah, it would be a grain, but you'd fancy your chances against them. We knew Germany, when we watched it at home and going on, Germany were the best team we'd saw. But they were also complimentary of us. And listen, Germany, England will always be a good game. After the game, Franz Bett and Matthias plays like that. were fantastic. No one else, we would have ran off to the crowds and gone mad and like, you know, they were, the German squad were brilliant. Class, yeah. yeah they were very good. And, and it was funny, when I got back, uh, I had a few weeks in Newcastle, a couple of weeks, and I obviously went back to Marseille to start the pre-season. I was a bit behind because of the tournament. And uh, walked in the change room and he'd been appointed <laughs> manager of Marseille. So when I got back, I read it, and obviously I knew, I thought, oh God, anyway... Walked in the change room and uh, he turned around and he went, Ah, oh, Chris. I went, uh, Hello, Franz. He went, My favourite English footballer. <laughs> and that's what he, he just said that. Nice. Like that. And I just thought, Yeah, yeah, nice. you know, brilliant. And uh, But he was a really nice guy. He let you know about the football if you weren't doing it, whether whoever you were, he'd there. Uh, if you weren't doing enough or doing what he wanted, then he'd hit you with it. Uh, but as a guy, fantastic. I make no bones, but I'm not embarrassed about the fact that, you know, I passionately love football, it gets me excited. But I like the little patterns within football, which makes me a train spotter. Mm. So I'm not proud of it. But it immediately takes me back to, I think, one of the first games you'll ever have remembered watching, which I think was in your auntie's house, which is when England played Germany in 1966. Watford, yeah, was in And you're seeing Beckenbauer that day and you end up playing for him. And you end up playing for Jackie Charlton as well. I don't think there's another footballer in the world who played for two of the guys in that pitch that day, but you. Yeah, Jack was a, Jack was a character and a half as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I never really thought of it like that. Um, but you did. You you recall watching him when the oh, that yeah. was my first sort of game I really watched. Yeah, it was uh, my holidays. Then my dad used to have a, <clears throat> a motorbike and sidecar, and uh, we used to travel, believe it, from Gateshead to Watford, which used to take. <laughs> I think it was about eight, nine, ten hours. Wait, wait, this is a, a motorbike and a sidecar. BSA, him and you. A BSA six fifty. My mum on the back. It was a three seated sidecar. I was in the front. One of my brothers in the middle and my other brother at the back. And we used to play, when we are going down here one, we used to jump and change seats in the sidecar. <laughs> and we used to have to guess who was sitting in seat. The one in the front had to guess who was sitting in seat one and seat two. So that was how we you know, fulfilled. And we'd stop off halfway down and for a cup of tea or whatever. Uh, yeah, but we used to travel to Watford on a BSA a motorbike six feet. And at night of it, ten, it broke down. Did it feel daring? Did it feel like... Not at the time, no. But when you look at it, it was, it was a little bit like watching on the buses. <laughs> you know, Aaron Robbins and, uh, you know, when they start that motorbike. And, but, yeah, it was a three-seat outside car and uh, we should set off from uh, Gateshead and get to Watford. And we'd have, like, a week in Watford or ten days. My mum's sisters all lived there. So I would go down there for, like... But I remember watching the game. Obviously, I was five, whatever. And my dad was saying, you know, watch this. Sitting watching it, I remember after playing with a kicking around a balloon in the house and going in the back garden and playing. And but yeah, it was sort of the first game I watched. You know, actually sat down and watched for a five-year-old and five and a half, whatever it was. It was quite hard to sit for all that period of time because you want to go and do things. But I actually sat and watched that game. You know, and um, you know, my dad was like, "Watch this," because you know, it's a bit of history, really. If England win it, it's you know. So uh, I remember that your, your talent was really clear throughout your school years, and then the sort of. You know, it didn't happen because Coventry thought mm. maybe you were, I don't know, too small or whatever. It was just, you know, because you're height now. It's hard to understand. But a guy I want to ask you about because he's very proud of, of your development is Arthur Cox. Mm. And, and what fascinates me is that, you know, he says he bullied you. Did. Why did he bully you? And could somebody do that these days? He bullied us because 
he could see the talent I had. And he used to think I was, he thought I probably had an attitude problem. I, I didn't have an attitude problem. I was shy, very shy. And he thought I had an attitude problem because it looked like I wasn't interested because I never spoke. I never. So he must have thought he's not bothered. When you come out of a, a factory work to go to a professional, and all of a sudden you're training with professionals who you're probably watching or reading about in the local papers, and all of a sudden you're training with them mm-hmm. from a non-league setup to that, you're just sort of thrown in. I mean, that's why I can see a lot of young players who get pushed aside and disregarded and said, no, nah, you just haven't got it. If you go on trial, I remember going on trial at Sunderland at and I was petrified. You know, training with these pros and who you've been watching. It's intimidating, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. And you always get one or two nice lads who will come up and say, oh, hey, you know, enjoying it. If you, you know, Most of them just take it as if they think, well, you have, you know, you sort of go in there and you, you don't know what you're doing because they are natural. They come in, the kit's there, they put it on, they do this, they sit there. To you, it's like, what is this, you know? And it was just shyness, really. And Arthur, I think Arthur got the wrong end of where he'd come in, obviously took over from Bill McGarry and, you know, the team was struggling and, he looked at the reserves and I was just starting out and I was on fire on the reserves. I, pre-season I found hard because it was the first pre-season I've ever done where you just thought, wow. I always said pre-season was ridiculous. The way they ran you. More Farrow wouldn't do as many miles as what we did. And it was right. When I went to France, it opened my eyes up about pre-seasons. But this was just like slog. You know, and I found it hard. I was still developing. I was skinny. Mm. Uh, I grew working in the fact that uh, from 16 to 18... I grew it to me hate, but I was like a rake. And he must have looked at this kid and thought, doesn't see anything, gets on with it, but lacks a bit of confidence. But to him, it was maybe he thought he's not that bad. What did he do? Everything was basically on my case. Whatever I did, I couldn't do anything right. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in training, you know, I'd go past two blokes and score, and he'd go, don't do it enough. It's not good enough. You, you do it every now and again. It's not good enough. Or your final pass, or your final cross, or your your final shot or whatever you did if you did it right it was you don't do it enough and if you didn't do it right obviously you lost the ball it would be there you go again it was just whatever you did you just thought if I scored two should have scored three eight great crosses in should have been nine so it was never a pat on the back it was always could do more always could do more and for two and a half years it was this was basically the life of I used to hide in the training ground I used to come in and I used to sneak in the changing rooms. I never used to go through, because he'd pick on us for anything. Mm-hmm. So it was like, basically, at school, somebody grabbing you every day and taking your pocket money off you. Mm. He'd fine us for the slightest things. Why didn't that break you? Because I, 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 I believed I had the ability. And by the way, there was a lot of times I spoke to like, some of the older players, and I used to say, I've had enough of him. Mm. I'm, I don't know whether to put a, a transfer request. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I just, I'm sick of it. And uh, it went... You know, and then Keegan, Kevin Keegan came, you know, and then we got promoted. It was basically that year we got promoted. Uh, so it was like two and a half years into it of playing. Where he actually caught us one day and he went, pennies dropped. But then after that was sort of a, but I don't want you to take your foot off the gas. Mm. You know, that type of thing. But he says, the pennies dropped, you're consistent now. Which yeah. for him, that, that must have been a big thing for him yeah. to say. Yeah, you know, it was like, what, you're actually praising us. It took mm. two and a half years to get a pat on the back. And he just said... You've got the consistency, you know, you've got... What he might have thought was attitude of, doesn't matter if it happens, doesn't matter. It, it did matter to us, it, but maybe it's my body language and the way I was, maybe that he thought I wasn't as interested or as um, focused or the passion and desire, what you need to go and succeed in football. 
I did have it. It was just I was shy. But he obviously took it the other way. You've used a phrase, body language, um, which I know you meant it in a different way, but it's part of the reason that we're all here today talking to you. In that I warned you before our chat, mm. I'd say things that would embarrass you. Mm. But these are sincere. I, I think that in many ways you were England's Zidane. I compare your balance and your vision and your ability with the ball and what you did with the ball, but what you could do to other people around you, which, which was pretty special. But another thing that annoys me is when I read people writing about you and they would say enigmatic or languid, which wasn't true. I think mm. you were very, very fast with the ball, mm. which is a rare trick. And you reminded me of Michael Loudrop yeah, and yeah. his ability to go past people at a fair physique too. Mm. Like, But are you able to define how you do the things you do with, not with the ball, but dropping the shoulder or showing people one way and going the other or all the various things that made you an elite footballer on the world level. Did it just happen because your brain gave you messages to your body or did you think about it or did it change from when you were skinny to when you were, you know, physically intimidating? No, uh, when I was started playing, kicking a ball around, when I was four, five, three, four, five, six. My dad was a massive football, uh, loved it. He loved football, he'd do his work, but football was his passion. Uh, I had two older brothers, so I was out on the field at three, four, playing. But at five, six, I was um, doing the body swerve then. I remember when I was six, seven, eight, I remember doing that trick. I, you know, people always say to me about, yeah, I'm a great believer in practising with the ball, getting the feel of a ball, passing the ball. But you can't go into training every day and say, right, lads, it's what we're doing now, we're going to do body swerves, step overs, Cruyff turns. I've seen a lot of players on training grounds do a step over, and I'll go, do that on a Saturday. It looks all right, that. You might work. No, I'm not doing that. Why? Well, I might trot on the ball or I might do it wrong. And? Well, if you do it right? No, I'm not doing it. To me, it was a natural thing to go and do. That's how I played. And the great thing I had growing up was, my dad obviously was a big influence because he always in the ear. But I never had a manager, whether it be a school teacher, whether it be under 18, uh, junior teams, even when I went to clubs, really, I never really had a guy who pulled me to one side and went, stop dribbling, mm. stop doing it. All he used to say was, give him the ball. Give him the ball and let him get on with it. And yes, some days it frustrates because it doesn't happen. For whatever reason, the kid's either good or he reads you or you just, it's just not there. But the art of, of beating people is how close you get to the man. You know, I, I watch now on the TV and I see players running and they're getting within five yards of the fullback or the centre-half or the midfield player, whoever they're playing against, and they start doing step-overs and they start doing this. Either foot over the ball, over the ball, but the guy's five yards away. You're never going to beat a guy five yards away. The object of beating a guy is getting as close as you can basically to you within a yard, because that is when basically you're going to go one way or the other or he's going to nick the ball off you. You can't beat a guy from five yards. He's got to be a very bad defender if you're beating a guy from five yards away, but that way. So to me... Now, somebody says, well, how far do you run the ball to the guy? I went, you don't. It's just not, it happens. And I've always believed that when, you, when you're a footballer, you're born with your talent you've got. Now, it's how you put together. Will you fail mentally, physically? Will you not be good enough that way? Listen, you, you can go and watch a Sunday morning game, you'll see a kid with a trick, but you just think mentally all, the whole package not good enough to step up ladders. But that level, he's a very good player. But you're born with it. I, I was Because it was to me, could you show us how to do a body sweep? And I went, I can show you, but you can't do it in the games because people don't sell a body sweep enough. You've got to sell it as if, 
I always just say, but imagine you're all going to go that way. And I used to look at the defender's point of view, and I'd say, if I'm going that way, he thinks I'm going that way, obviously. And it's just that last second where you think, I'm not, mate. You think I am. <laughs> so you've got to really exaggerate it as if to think the ball is getting left behind in a way because I'm taking it off. I'm taking off from my right foot. I'm off. And it's just that last second where you're off. He think where he is. He's going. He goes. And then you take it with your left foot, which I do. Obviously, if you're right foot, you do the other way. And that's how you beat the guy. But if I run up to the guy, I've seen it work down his wrong from five yards, but... The time when it works and when it really works is you've got to convince that man. It's a confidence trick. Go that way. It's yeah. a con, it's oh, a con yeah. artist, isn't it? It's like a step over. You know, it looks like you're taking the ball you, and you don't. You just roll your foot over it. But the guy thinks you're kicking the ball, so he goes that way and then you change direction to take the ball in the foot. You know, anybody can do this, but the art is when to do it and it's that split second. You know, when you watch Lionel Messi, when you watch Cristiano Ronaldo when he's, best, when he's, on the, you know, when he's dribbling... Mm. All these players that we want to talk about, who you'll mention, you know, your Ronaldinho's over the years, and all these players, and Tommy Hutchinson's or John Robertson's, they used to drag the ball. They'd have the ball right up the people. You used to torment the, the fullback, you know, because there's always a play and you back off, back off, back off, back off. So you used to think, he never goes past us, but you think, I don't need to go past you, because you just back off till I get to an area where I can cross it or pass it. So you're doing me a favour, really. Then you'll get the ones who think, what I'll do is I'll back, 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 then I'll dive in. And then again, that's timing to see him coming, that movement, that split second. When you see him come to tackle you, you move the ball and he's lying on his backside now, oh, he's stuck and you're away. You know, then it's like, show him this way, show him that way. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. And I always tell a story where I remember playing against Maldini at Wembley for England and I think it was about 80, 80, 80 I think he was 20, 19, 21. And I was raving about this kid. And don't get us wrong, he, what a player he was. Mm. Anyway, I played and it was in a midweek game friendly for England against Italy and I tortured him. I played right. And I always remember the game, I come off and I thought, that, you know, that's how you play as a winger type thing. And I was like, the Italians were like, can't believe it. <laughs> Never seen anybody do that. And the press, man, you know, and then when I, you know, years on, I've always said, every Italian player I met, Mancini was manager of Man City, and I went in the tunnel and I was median. And they always used to say the same thing, Viali the lot, the only man to embarrass Maldini. <laughs> and I used to think, is that what I remembered for in Italy, just for that, is that it? And anyway, years ago, and um, I was playing Sunday morning football in Sheffield and uh, played against a young fullback, pub football, and this young kid bought every trick, every trick. And I had this kid spinning round. And I was 42, 43. The centre-half shouting across. It's only before the game. 
He always does the same thing. So and then I'm going to centre off. Well, you come out here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, then he's saying, if I come out there, I'll put you across the touchline yeah, and all that. I went, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before, you know. Anyway, this young kid's like, oh, I'm sick of this. Final whistle going, this kid, centre offs on his left backs, on his case all the time. So as the game finishes, I walk off and I go, listen, mate, don't worry about that. And he went, oh. I went, Maldini fell for the same thing. Then <laughs> the kid went, he sort of grew in hate. Yeah, then he went to send off it. Maldini fell out. <laughs> I always used to say to Pino, I said, don't worry, Maldini fell for the same trick, mate. I, you've, you've encapsulated two things there, the beauty of the sport and the reason we're all here, but also the fact you're a good man because... If you've got a little kid tied up and not that, like, it's easy to humiliate him and laugh at him, but you've made, oh, him, you've yeah. made, him, you've made him feel good. Also, we, we talked in the journey down about how often we meet great athletes, great sportsmen and women who, who can't describe what they do, but you can, and you obviously thought about it. And you've made me think about Shane Warne bowling somebody yeah. up and how they get into the batsman's head. Yeah. And you were doing the same one-on-one. Oh, it's, cat and mouse, it's cat and mouse. Listen, you know, when I first started playing football, I knew, I knew, and I used to say to the ref from the kick-off, I'd say, ref, if I was playing on the wing or I was playing something, whatever I was playing, I'd say to the ref, I'd say, ref, by the way, I'm just going to warn you now. That left back's going to put me in the stand in the first 10 minutes of this game. So I'm just marking your card. So I need a little bit of help here. You know what you're on about? And I went, you watch within the first 10 minutes of this game, he will boot me 10 yards of my own half or around the halfway line. That manager will have told him. How can you say that? And I went, well, watch. 10 minutes, wallop. I got to learn, because I played Sunday morning football at 13, 14, I was playing pub football then. I learned how to ride tackles. You can imagine I was only like, at 14, I was like five foot three, five foot two, and I'm playing against men on a Sunday morning. I just had the same tricks as I had when I played against whoever. I had the same tricks at 13 and I did have when I was 30. So all of a sudden, I'm beating a bloke who's probably had 10 pints the night before, and he's getting embarrassed by a 13-year-old kid. So I knew, and the lads used to say it was other blokes, you know what you're doing, you're taking the mic out that full back and he's going to boot you at some stage because he's sick of you. So I used to think, right, well, if it, but I learned through playing like that levels how to ride tackles. could see it coming. Listen, you used to get caught now and again, mm. but you could ride most of the tackles. Explain ride. Basically, you know that there's an opportunity when the ones that prefer was when it's on its way to you, mm-hmm. that is their chance to think it's going to be close. If he sprints to the ball and I'm going to receive it, that's their time to lunge in and hit you. So a full sliding tackle. Or, or just, yeah, just swing as if to think, I'm going to get the ball, but I'd realistically, I'm going to take you out as well. And that was the ball. So when you got the ambulance ball coming across with a blue light flashing on it, you should think, here we go. You'd see the guy coming, and I should think, right, so all I'm going to do is nick it around the corner and jump. So as he came in, you'd just nick it, ride the tackle, obviously, and you'd go over with it, and you'd land on the ground. And you'd just sit on the ground, and you'd go to the ref. <laughs> and then he'd go... They always give him a warning first. Yeah. So I say, why did you give him a warning? <laughs> and he used to say, what do you mean? I said, why did you give him a warning? So what you're saying to him is, have another go at it. You've got a free one. Yeah. There's your free tackle. You've got another one. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew. Then I thought, right. Well, I used to then think, well, if I do it again, I'm on a yellow. Now, if, to me, if I got him on a yellow, he was then He was finished. The game was over. Because he didn't touch me again. Because the next time it was red. So once you got him on a yellow, you thought, right, here we go. He cannot make just another tackle like that again. Nowhere near one like that. He can't pull you back if you go on the outside or whatever. He can't, he can't take you out of the game anymore. So he's got to play as a fullback now against you. It's like he can't touch you anymore. So that was when he used to think, We're on. That's, this is where I, in my mind, it was, 
me v the left back he's booked it's game over for him and a lot of clubs would sub him or change the right back yeah. to the left back so you know that was it but when you're grown up I knew that all the tackles coming in I learned to ride them and it was all part of growing up so when I got the pro level obviously it's quicker they're a bit more cuter at how they do it you know but you know the same thing was going to happen mm. so it was just a matter of riding it okay you've talked about two types of bravery there because you talked about knowing that something physical's coming in you know you, you either put up with that or you don't but you've also talked about risk football is very conservative a lot of footballers are scared of being humiliated we talked before we put the mic on about the dressing room at Marseille the Frenchman mm. actually taking three months to own up they could speak English because they were worried that the, you said yeah. they were worried that their teammates would take the piss out of them now these are grown men venerated around the world earning millions of euros and, and brilliantly skilled at something yeah. yet they're scared of being exposed for speaking English to you and they're, or they're scared of trying a trick on a Saturday they're scared about yeah. what if it doesn't come off yeah. that's a different kind of bravery that in life mm-hmm. you, when you, you seem to have innately got like I don't mind I'm going to be live with style or live with humour or mm. take a risk of a shot or a chip or a, or a nutmeg won't come off, but you, you, you don't care about that. No, I, I think football for me was an entertainment business. I think you pay money to be entertained. Listen, if you go to a stadium and there's 36,000 there, or there's 56,000, or there's 80,000 there, listen, if you're a, a, an artist, a singer in a, a group, you must think this is, what, this is what you play for. You know, when they go on that stage and the, the stadium's full and they start belting their songs out and the crowd's going mad, they must think, this is as good as it gets. So to me, I was always brought up that it's a, it's an entertainment business, you know, and people want to be, I used to love it when, even with Hillsborough when I was at Wednesday and I would be standing on the right south stand where the tunnel is and the boys get transferred across to Johnny Sharon, pings one across to us. Our new round is, as the ball was coming, I used to think, well, he's not going to full back on, get there, he's too far away. I would bring the ball down, bring it down and then I'm going to think, right, this is it, I'm coming for you. As soon as the ball came to my chest, I turned out the corner of my eye. I could see everybody in the stand go. <laughs> and you could hear the seats go, flap, flap, flap. <laughs> and I used to think, that's what I come for. I used to think, that's what I come for. Now, I'd run at the full-back. Listen, I might cock it up. I might have fell off the ball. I might have run it out of play. He might, he might take it off us. But I just thought, you know, I'll go past him, you know, and he could hear a... You know, when is it Marseille? You know, the velodrome... Fantastic, the old stadium, you know, the old bicycle track. Atmosphere was fantastic. It was, it was all round the ground at Marseille. It's not just about an end where British grounds always had a cockpit. Yeah. And the rest of it was all people sat like that way in a way. The club and whatever. In Marseille, it was just the whole ground was fanatical. Yankees and the thingies and the ultras. And it was just non-stop. So when you obviously got people on toast and you were doing things to people and, you know, it, it, and literally, it's, yeah, it, you can understand why people wanted to kick it, isn't it? Because... I did embarrass a lot of people. And when I look back, I used to say to them after, I'm not embarrassing you. I've got nothing. I don't even know you. Mm. I'm doing my job. At the end of the day, I wasn't going up there and being a Harlem Globetrotter and just doing it because it was a testimonial games or benefiting it. There was points at stake. There was money at stake. There was everything at stake. So the team would say, they didn't ever see anything. I just looked at them and they used to thought, get the ball, get the ball, get the ball. But they used to thought, because there's something at the end of it, there's a cross, a shot. Something's going to happen or I'll roll somebody in. That's why they gave the ball. And yes, in the, in the mean state of before you did that, you might have went past two people or embarrassed the one guy to, you're saying you nutmegged them or you did something to them where the crowd all went. Well, so you just think, well, you're getting the whole package here. I was two different people, mate. On the field, I had more as much confidence as anybody, really. I, I believed I could 
do things with the football and it was like a stage. But when I got off the field, I was reserved. So people used to see this character on a field of smile and joke and yeah, all the daft things I did, you know, which was amusing. And they saw this guy on the field who smiled at the cameras and uh, as the game was going on and you know, I remember doing game at Nancy, I think, the game was going on, I was signing autographs on the touch. <laughs> and it, you know, but to the French it was like, wow, we've never seen a guy, we've never had a guy like this before. I was just doing daft things. But I was just enjoying myself. And when I got off the field, people would thought I was the same guy on the field who basically was a, a bit of a, a joke or a bit of this, wanted to do this. I wasn't. I liked to come off it. And I didn't like being recognised off the field. I'm not one of them who parades around, you know, um, I like to come off, I shut the door. That's it. Nobody sees us, nobody knows us. Yeah, I go in the village, I go local, I've got some good friends and all that. But, I'm, you know, people say, oh, we're going downtown Saturday. I'm not going down. You know, and it's not because you, you think I'm, I'm above that or I don't want... I get embarrassed a bit by recognition. And I always have. Like, no, I've not really enjoyed that side of it. I love the football side of it when you're on the field because it's freedom and you, you're doing your job. Mm-hmm. So when the job's finished, you become who you want to be, or who you are, actually who you are. And I, I do nothing like that off the field. You know, I just talk football. Everybody wants to talk football because that's football. But, um, you know, I don't do anything uh, off the field. And people may actually, a lot of people say, he's quite reserved, quite shy, don't see a lot of him. And, but the field was my stage. We, we most recently spoke to Charlie Nicholas, mm. who obviously was a yeah. pain in the butt for you at Spurs, which he admits yeah, himself. Yeah. And Charlie spoke a lot about just what you're touching on, that he was regarded as flamboyant. Champagne Charlie. Champagne Charlie. Yeah. Sometimes a show off and that. Whereas he was saying that throughout his life and his career, he surprised people in that a manager or an agent would say, well, you, you'll get on with him, but that, that quiet fellow, you won't. And Charlie's like, well, I'm completely different. I'm quite happy in the company of maybe a quiet or a laid back guy. I'm not That's showy. Yeah. And he spoke really emotionally sometimes, but also really frankly. And he's just a heart and a sleeve a type of guy who, who isn't particularly attracted by the fame or by the notoriety. And um, he talked about when he moved to London that it had been an immense struggle for him. Yeah. He had to move his sister in to try and give him company and support, which is a very brave thing to admit. Before I go back to... There's a piece of showmanship I want to, I want to ask you about what was going through your mind. I thought you were really brave about a decade ago when you talked in your book about been quite depressed about really struggling and you talked about you didn't know then you should go and speak to somebody maybe speak to Arthur Cox mm. but you raised it and talked about the fact that it's a much more common thing for footballers to have a happy face and look rich and successful but behind the scenes it bears no relation to mm. their, their life as an ordinary human being does it? No because as I say it's you, you, everybody knows who we are in a way people who follow football and to the fans whether they've got 30,000 or 50,000 you know to them it's what they see on the football pitch. Hmm. But there is two lives, you know, you like to get away from the football and, yeah, listen, it works in your favour. Sometimes you can be in a restaurant and it's, it's complimentary because you're so-and-so and this is that and this is free and that's free and that's free and it benefits. But you just like to cut a line somewhere and think, you know, I used to go on holiday to America a lot because deliberately in America nobody knew who we were, hmm. or I was anyway. Hmm. So I enjoyed America. It was like being... A normal person. And I, I got to a stage, even when at Sheffield Wednesday, where I got depression a little bit came because they were expecting more every game. So all of a sudden you've, you've got this image built around you of, well, you know, every time I got the ball, they wanted us to dribble past two, three people, cross it, somebody headed it in, or pass it. Every game became, and eventually it got to us where I thought, 
I can't do any more. And what I just can't keep going to another level of what they want. So all of a sudden you start, it gets to you a bit. So all of a sudden where you're out there playing with a smile, it becomes a bit of, you know, the ball would come to you and you'd see two guys running across towards you and you thought, no, drop it down, pass it back into midfield or whatever. And you'd hear like, oh, you know, like a, a disappointment in the stadium as if to say, oh. And you just thought, you can't do it all the time. Mm. Nobody can. Mm. And, but it gets to you because you keep thinking, you know, when you got the ball, you've got to do something great all the time. And it does get you. There's no doubt about it. I, you know, I don't know modern players are like, but when we were playing, it would be that as well. If you went and saw a manager and said, oh, I feel a little bit dingy about it. Yeah. They'd say, then old school would be, shut up. Don't, don't, get don't, out. Don't admit a weakness. Yeah, get out. What are you talking about? Where in modern day, it would be like, hey, we've got a guy coming in to talk to you. We'll send you to so-and-so. <laughs> That's the way the game's changed. Old school was, was there something wrong with you? Mm. And he'd be like, well, the, get out. Mm. You know, just get on with it. And, and, you know, it's changed the game now. It got to a level where I just thought, you can't do this week in, week out, what you are doing. Yeah, maybe with a bit of luck you could, but it gets to you. It did get to me where I thought, I, I can't do it. I just can't keep doing what people expect. You must moderate when we come off this subject, because it's your choice. But then... For anybody listening to this, I'll say for sure that now the the, the fact is, if anybody's suffering from that, at mm. all, find somebody. Talk oh, to definitely. Somebody. You're not alone. Yeah. It's not a weakness. It's not imagined. No. Speak and share. Yeah. I think is. I'd say great. Well, in, in, in in everyday in life, life, in life, share in life, be open. But uh, somebody who's annoyed the hell out of you when you shared a room with them, but who's <laughs> very very dear to you. Gaza wasn't just this hyperactive, quite witty, funny, generous man. He, you know, he'd suffered. Tremendously difficult problems in his life. Are you as thrilled as I am to see him mm. just slightly finding a balance and equilibrium and, and looking happy and healthy again? I am. I'm, I've spoken to him often and on. Obviously, moved down south and I've had the odd call, uh, chat with him. Not a lot, to be honest. But yeah, I read like everybody else and I hear, you know, and he's looking good at the minute, yeah. Isn't he? I think if you can just keep him like that now. But, you know, the, the downside for Paul will be something will trigger which will upset him, or somebody who he knows something might happen to, or, you know, something will, will trigger something, which he could easily go back down the old route. That's what we've seen basically over the years. Something happens, he turns to the bottle. You know, something happens, he turns to the bottle. You know, there's ways of dealing with things. Obviously, his ways, to his mind, it must be, I'm very unhappy now, so the best cure will be to get drunk. You know, yes, he's had help, and he's had a lot of help, by the way, you know, and, but... Well, Paul is, you see him get into, I've seen him now and he looks great at the minute. He's doing the question answers, he's going around the country and, you know, whatever he's doing and he's got something on his mind and he's working and he's got a purpose. The problem with Paul would be is something will trigger something off which sends him down that road. Then that's when people have got to, or he's got to fight. That's where he thinks, no, I'm not going down that road. I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to go that way. And I think something which can easily upset him where we might think, I'll go and talk to somebody or look at it and deal with it in a way which most people would probably deal with it. He may turn to alcohol or something. You see, I'm, I want to be careful because his, his life became such a struggle and he's a human being, not an ex-footballer. You know, I, I worry sometimes about talking about the things that made him such a national hero beyond his football because these are also things that led him into difficulties. Mm. But from my limited experience of meeting him and talking to him, number one... Again, beyond his skills, he was a lovely man, a really, really nice, warm human being. Mm. And 
outrageously funny. I mean, off the scale funny. Mm. Is that a fair representation of the guy you knew when he was at his happiest and fittest and, you know, he was whole as a person? Oh, listen, the best nights of my life have been with him. And even me missus will say the same. We had some unbelievable times with him. He was totally off the cuff. You didn't know what was going to happen. Or nine times out of ten, it would let to a bit of trouble or headlines. To him, it was nothing if saying, what's wrong with that? But I said, I used to say, don't do that. Why? Your poor gas going. It'll be front page. Even if it was like anything, little trivial, you'll make the papers. He didn't see that. He couldn't see that. He used to think, what for? He, he didn't understand that. And that's I, the point. He wasn't doing it for effect, was no. he? No. He's got this natural torrent yeah. of inventiveness and He'll wit. He'll just do and... something. He's off the cuff. You don't know what's going to happen with him. He'll do things where you think, what are you doing that for? You know, to him, it's nothing. It's like, well, I just fancy doing it. I just, you know, sitting in the hand and something. And, but to him, he didn't see the consequences of Paul Gascoigne front page again. And um, so a lot of things he let the trouble. But total, um, he gave the shit off his back. ICC was too generous to people, the things he used to do. Great company. You're always on the edge with them, though. You didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, literally, you didn't know what was going to happen. So it made you a little bit... Did you share a room? You felt oh, like yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, first time... He used to sit and I sat on a bed and he'd be on the other bed and then he'd say, do you want a cup of tea? And I'd go, yeah, go on. Go, Sugar, yeah, one, yeah, OK. And I'd be watching the telly and he'd come and put it down and he'd go like, what's that? And, you know, he'd put bubble bath in it. Just, you know, you'd say, well, what are you doing that for? You know, it's a waste of a cup of tea, that. And he'd be like, I don't know, I just went and got the bubble bath. So then we'd share rooms. You know, and I remember sharing rooms with Paul and we'd be ten floors up in a hotel with Spurs or whoever. He'd go down, lads would bring like cheese and biscuits to the bedroom. He would bring a dozen eggs. And I'd say, what you brought these eggs? What's this all about? And he'd open the window and he'd, if it was like across the road, it was a cash pound or something like that. <laughs> and by the way, he can throw, he had a right arm on him, Paul. I mean, he could throw up like anything out of his hands. Seriously? Oh, a great throwback. He could have been a baseball player. He could have been anything, by the way. Anyway, yeah. people were cash pointing and you'd just hear, and you'd see all these eggs exploding and you'd think, people were like that. You know, it was like a bird had dropped an egg on them. It was like, and I think, I'd sit there and he sat at the window all night like this. Eggs, batting them, thing like that. <laughs> they wouldn't move. Like, like an egg sniper. He'd just, he'd just sit there waiting. <laughs> and when people would come to the cash point, he'd go, well, one co- I've got one, I've got one. <laughs> and I'd be just lying on the bed watching the telly and I'd think, I'd say, Paul, you're going to get in trouble. Because if they turn around and they see you, not, but nobody knew where they were coming from. You know, he's like six floors <laughs> up. And he's like that. And they were like, the t- like missiles. <laughs> and I'd say, you're going to... And you didn't, obviously, but... There'd be something where you think, why don't you just bring cheese and biscuits like everybody else, or a yogurt or something, you know, a bar of chocolate. Why do you bring a dozen eggs with you everywhere we go? But that was him, totally. He didn't look at the consequences. To him, it was a bit of fun. To other people, it would be like, no, you can't do that. But to him, it was just, well, you're having a bit of fun. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones 
who get it done. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.